Hey everyone, welcome to episode 14 of the True Crime Couple. We just want to first of all say thank you so much for all of your listens and reviews on iTunes. They've been so amazing. We've we've reached 100,000 listens. It's pretty remarkable. It's pretty good. So we might be doing something right. We know the audio is still a little off, so we're working on it. But what you could do to help us out would be to review us on iTunes. That would be a huge help. And if you are interested, you could donate to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. Anything helps, even a dollar. We want to try and start getting some new equipment so we can sound a little bit better for you guys. Okay, so let's jump right into the episode. Today we're going to be covering a case that shows that investigations are not always what they seem, and that even when our law enforcement agencies work together and our system is successful, it doesn't always mean there will be a happy ending. In the case that follows, we are going to discuss a man that epitomizes why we wanted to start this podcast. We will tell the tale of a case that involves the Secret Service and the FBI. We will also discuss the way law enforcement worked together to convict a guilty man, whether or not he could have been stopped, if justice was served, and we'll try to figure out just why he did what he did. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. We are going to pick up with our case in 1984 in Tennessee. The Secret Service has been on the hunt for a professional counterfeiter for four years now. And although this may seem weird to those in the United States, because our Secret Service is most associated with the protection of our president, it isn't. Since the creation of the Secret Service in 1865, their main focus was to stop the counterfeiting of money, which at the time accounted for one-third of all circulating money in the country. Our two agents who are assisting the case are David Booz and Greg Hertz. They served their country from the Nixon administration through the presidency of Bill Clinton. Their focus right now, though, is the mall passer. The counterfeiter received this nickname because he had been traveling around the country from state to state, passing off fake $20 bills. This is the easiest currency to counterfeit because it is the most circulated bill. He would go to a mall that was located right off of an interstate, obviously because there was heavy traffic and it was easy to get away. He would visit about 50 stores a trip, purchasing a small item with a fake $20 bill, and in return he would get legitimate cash. Most of the time, he would throw out the small item that he purchased. Over the four years that he was being hunted, he had accumulated around 130000 in profit of legitimate cash. Wow. Yeah, that's... I mean, he was making bank. It's quite a payday. And that's 130000 in 1984, which today would amount to around half a million dollars. I gotta say, it's pretty smart. I might quit my job teaching. <laughs> <laughs> Even if law enforcement would catch up to him, he would always get away because he knew the layout of each mall he hit, and he used the easiest exit for a getaway. In recalling the hunt for the mall passer, the agent said that everyone was after him. He was like a ghost, so if you caught him, it'd be great for you. We had his composite sketch circulating the country with every law enforcement agency in existence. So they were really trying to get this guy. 
I mean, this guy swindled a lot of people there right, in the mall, <laughs> the stores and everything. After a four-year investigation, it's kind of like embarrassing. Like, you can't catch this guy. You yeah, it's like it's one dude. Service. Yeah. <laughs> so the agents received a break when the mall passer struck in Tennessee. He usually struck a few malls within the area before he moved on to another state. So they quickly passed out his sketch to every cashier and mall security officer in the state. Their break came when a clerk at a large mall recognized the man in the sketch as a customer who had just bought an item for $1.50 and made the purchase with a $20 bill. bill. After he left the store, she contacted security and told them she believed the man was in the mall and just had been in the store. This was the protocol the agents told her to use because they didn't want to put any civilians in harm's way. The same instruction went to mall security call the police if the man that they suspected to be the mall passer was in the area. The agents and police were at the mall within 15 minutes. They had the mall full of undercover agents at this point, and the officers were looking for a man that had been evading law enforcement for four years. He was finally spotted. When the mall passer noticed he was being watched, he made a run for it. He ran to the nearest exit, but was quickly apprehended by the nearest officer. The Secret Service had finally captured their guy. In this disgustingly dirty car that they're going to find, the agents are going to find wads of fake $20 bills. And each stack had a label on it indicating which city it would be used for. So this guy's... I mean, it sounds cool and, like, smart, but, like, you're kind of an idiot. Like... Right. That's so much evidence against him. Hey, <laughs> at least we know that he would be one of those guys that, like, buys those things on QVC that you could just, like, you know, make your own labels and, like, put it on everything. Oh. <laughs> The, like, Q-Touch or something? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My mom had one of those. The car, <laughs> the car of the man they had in custody was registered under two names, and the man in custody had given a different name altogether, so they have no idea who they're dealing with. So the only way they would know for sure who they had in custody would be if they fingerprinted him. So his prints came back as belonging to James Mitchell de Bartolaben. It was state that's a name. It was stated that he went by the alias of Roger Colin Blanchard, and that was the two names that the car was registered to. But his name was DeBarta Laban. And even though his name is James, he goes by Mike. This, however, is not the time for the agents to rest. Now that the suspect had been arrested, the clock is gonna begin ticking. The offense that DeBarta Laban had been charged with was a felony, and he could easily make bond. I hope he doesn't pay with fake $20 bills. You know, I was just thinking that. Oh. Like, how funny would it be <laughs> if he paid his bond with all fake money? <laughs> the whole point of capturing the counterfeiter is not just to catch the man, but to suppress the printing plant and get the printing plates for the production of the counterfeiting money so everything could be halted. They had to get to the plant before DeBarta Laban does. And the fact that he was acting so strangely was making them work faster. Because they felt like this guy that they've been hunting for four years, they now caught him, and he's just saying, yeah, I'm a counterfeiter. Like, it's just that easy. They feel like there's something shady going on because it's way too easy what's going down with this guy. He probably will. Yeah. So when the Secret Service agents are going to start, you know, questioning him, they kind of get in his face, they're like, we know who you are, Mike, and he's going to respond to them by saying, you have no idea what I've done. 
So they're like, what the hell's up with this guy? We need to start searching all of his property because we need to get to this printing plant way before he gets out. In searching all of the properties under his name, the Secret Service comes across an apartment rented to him in Oakwood, Virginia. The apartment is within the Oakwood Apartments complex, and they tear it completely apart, and they don't find any printing plates. The agents, who at this point had been up for 36 hours straight, decide to give the apartment one more search. So these guys are working some overtime. It is during this search that one of the agents decides to give another look to the phone book. He decides to rip out every page that has a mark, underline, or circle. But then he comes upon a page that has a, that has a piece of lined paper between the pages. And in that page, he's going to find an advertisement for a moving and storage company. And he thinks, oh my god, this is it. We found it. He's got all of his stuff locked up in a storage facility. They discover that DeBarda Laban had a few storage units rented only blocks from his apartment. They immediately go to search the units. However, it is here that they're going to find a little bit more than they bargained for. Upon immediate inspection of the unit, they do find their printing plates and all of the materials used to print the counterfeit money. But as they continue to search the boxes that are piled up in the storage unit, they find a lot more. Some of the items that were found in um, the 144 boxes were over 20 pistols, an array of different handcuffs, sex toys, police badges, blue lights, adhesive tape, nylon rope, maps of various cities around the country, women's clothing, notes on how to kidnap and torture women. He was an extensive note taker and they found hundreds and hundreds of his notes about like what worked to torture women, what didn't work, what was the best way to kidnap someone, how to react after they reacted a certain way. Like he was kind of studying the art of abduction. Well, he was fine tuning his craft. Right. Yeah, that's I mean, yeah, that's crazy. Um he also is going to keep a lot of receipts for everything. So he's a moron. So they're able to track him throughout the country of where he was because he kept every receipt for every hotel and gas station. Hey, listen, Kay, you know, he needs receipts for his taxes. I guess so. I mean, I don't think that's a good write-off. Various torture devices are going to be found. Pictures of women who look to have been tortured. And the last thing they're going to find are audio tapes with women's names written on them. And it's clear that they didn't just have a counterfeiter on their hands at this point. He was a sexual sadist. So the Secret Service has some work to do here. The Secret Service and local law enforcement in Tennessee are going to listen to one of the tapes. And it holds the recording of a man torturing a woman. The agents recall the screams and the begs of the woman asking the man to just kill her. They were only able to listen to 30 seconds of the tape before they had to turn it off. Now these tapes were never released to the public and no one has ever heard the full unedited version of the tapes. An edited version of the tapes were recently played on the Investigation Discovery show, Hear No Evil. So those are the only clips that we have. And Investigation Discovery chose to edit out the screams and the responses of the women to the the man um, out of respect for the victim and the victim's families. Some of the women that are featured on the tape are live or we don't know what happened to them. So it was a respect thing. So what we're going to do now is play the clips for you that aired on the show. 
And this is just a warning. The tapes that we're going to play are deeply disturbing. And they are the product of a man who, a sadomasochistic man who did horrible things to a lot of people. So if this is kind of something that disturbs you, you might want to fast forward through the tapes. Now, please keep in mind that they're just clips and it's the only thing that's been released to the public. So um, we don't know the context of the tapes and we also don't know what the responses are. But when you hear like pauses, that's because that's where the edited version of the woman screaming would be. Okay, so we're going to play some of those clips for you now. First, I'm going to take a whole bunch of pictures. Still shots, color shots. Nothing but a piece of... Tell me that you're fascinated by the pain. Describe the pain. How does it hurt? Describe it. Just exactly how does it hurt? To smoke a cigar and push the cigar in the middle of your back and put it out so you can feel the pain. identity. Second, buy a house according to my own specifications and needs with a secret fun area which would include a cage so that I could have a SMB locked up. A prime importance, top priority would be an incinerator capable of incinerating at an extremely high temperature. Total incineration. I would also want enough money to last for a year without working. Okay, sorry for even making you listen to those disgusting clips, but I think it's interesting to hear the man speaking. And, you know, we talk about these kind of crimes all the time, but it's crazy when someone captures a video or an audio of their crime because it kind of suspends that crime in time. And he does it because obviously he wants to relive what he's doing. And there's some things that we have to explain to you. So, like, when he talked about locking up an SMB, he's talking about, um, that was his acronym for a sadomasochistic bitch. So that's the woman that he would want to keep captive with him. And when there's pauses, like, especially after the cigar comment that he made about putting the cigar out in the woman's back, the pause is because that's where the woman was screaming. So that's what was edited out by Investigation Discovery. And they only released the clips that could be heard of him speaking without the women screaming in the background because they didn't want to release that to the public. Right. So this is just 
really the tip of the iceberg for the uh, like. There's so much more to those tapes. Oh yeah. I mean, there, unspeakable. There was 46 women pictured and tapes of over 50 women. I also find it really interesting that the um, counterfeiting operation that he had going on was really just to fuel his uh, his habit. Right. At first, we think counterfeiting is like his main crime, and that's what he's doing. But counterfeiting only exists for him because he needs to fund what he's doing. You're right. It's crazy. And his goal, his goal of having a house and an incinerator and yeah. a sex room. Well, not a sex room, a torture room, really. It's, it's almost like what we saw with the the toy box killer yeah and the tape that he plays which is someone that we definitely want to cover in the future so we don't want to get too into it but the two are very similar to each other in the taping of crimes i also find it really interesting like i said it's 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 a real big twist i mean i i i had no idea this guy even existed no he's not talked about a lot and that's Really interesting because the FBI's behavioral analysis unit actually does a lot of work with him. So it's really interesting that he's one of the lesser known serial killers, serial rapists out there. But I think that's we're going to get into why he's a little bit lesser known. And that's because of his body count really is up for debate completely. Right. I mean, it could there could be more victims. Oh, there's 100% more victims out <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, Definitely. So after hearing the full-length version of these tapes that we didn't get to hear, the Tennessee law enforcement is going to tell the Secret Service that they don't have the resources or the manpower to investigate this case. In order for the Secret Service agents to continue investigating this, it must first be approved. The two agents that we discussed before are going to travel to Washington, D.C. to show all the evidence and the tapes to their superiors. While they were playing the tapes, the director of the Secret Service happened to walk by. His name was John Simpson. And after hearing the brutality on the tapes, he gave the go-ahead to get DeBarta Laban for everything they could. The Secret Service agents knew that they could not handle this case on their own either. They found in the storage units maps of various cities and pictures of 46 different women. If Tabarda Laban ran this operation like the counterfeiting, they knew that these women were from all over the country. They reached out to the FBI and all state law enforcements. They didn't want to give the actual pictures of the girls in the photographs, so what they did was they made renderings or drawings of what the girls looked like because they didn't want those photos being released, because if you're going to release them to the FBI and all state law enforcement, there's a huge chance that they're going to start getting leaked, and then there's going to be chaos about a serial killer in the country. And they also gave them the name of the suspect they had in custody, DeBarta Laban, his aliases, and they are going to give him a full list of all the names that were listed on the tapes that they had. And they wanted to see if any of these things were connected with any missing persons cases that somebody else might have. And after all these discoveries and the wait to hear back from other law enforcement agencies, the Secret Service is going to take a full look at his record and his background history. And it's really lengthy. So what we're going to do here is kind of go through the life and crime of Mike DeBartolaben. So all the information here is gained through... Criminal records, military records, police records for pending charges against him, and also a book 
called Lethal Shadow, which is written by Stephen Mitchard. And this is a great book because this author is known for working a lot with someone who is associated with Behavioral Analysis Unit. So it was a really good book that outlined the whole life of DeBarta Laban. So he has extensive knowledge about the man. So we kind of get a full picture of his life. So let's get into it. James DeBarta Laban, also known as Mike, was born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1940. He would eventually be the middle of three children. His father was an accomplished lieutenant in the army, meaning that for the first 13 years of his life, he will live all over the world. After the attacks on Pearl Harbor, the family moves to Washington, D.C., where he's posted for the duration of World War II. After this, the family moves to Austin, Texas for several years until his father is stationed in the South Pacific in 1949. In that year, the family will move around another two times, first to Kentucky and then to Frankfurt, Germany, two of the most opposite places in the world. And in 1950, DeBarta Laban's father is promoted to lieutenant colonel and they are stationed in, in the Netherlands where he will serve as the military advisor for the U.S. Embassy until his retirement in 1953. So the family finally resides at a federal service post in Albany, New York. And that's where he's going to live out, you know, the rest of his adolescent life. But him moving around, not being able to adapt to a certain area, get friends, have to kind of like recreate himself every time he moves, the people that analyze him at the BAU are going to kind of say that this has a lasting effect on him as a person because he's never truly able to establish an identity. I mean, that makes sense. It does. I mean, it makes sense when you have no friends, you don't know anybody. Like, that's hard. Yeah, I mean, once settled, his childhood is still anything but normal. And I think that someone that went through what he went through that didn't have deep-rooted other psychological issues would have been fine, but I think it was just like adding fuel to the fire that was his childhood because he also had a very difficult relationship with his mother who was an alcoholic and she was considered a very verbally abusive parent and his father's gone all the time because he's working right so he's kind of left to fend for himself with his mother and i'm sure i mean i don't want to assume anything but i would just i would think that any child coming like that lives in a military household has some strict rules oh yeah definitely. you know or strict teachings i'm not saying that it's like abusive or anything just that you know the you know they're definitely laying down the law because yeah well i feel like it's normal it's not it's never said that there's not any physical abuse because you have to think about the 1940s 1950s use of physical abuse against children was kind of commonplace but there was no record or any claim by DeBarta Laban that he was ever sexually assaulted. So that's off the table. It was kind of just his deep-rooted hatred for women is going to begin with the hatred of his mother. Right. And resentment of her. He also has an older sister, but nothing's ever said about his relationship with his older sister. So we don't know what that was like, but he had a very difficult relationship with his mother they moved to Albany, New York, his mother begins work as a secretary, which they said only made her alcoholism a lot worse and more difficult to deal with. So things are going to get worse over time. 
1956, he assaulted his mother during an argument the two were having. And that same year, he and a friend purchased two handguns and ammunition. He was arrested shortly after for possessing a concealed firearm. This would be his first felony charge. Within the same month that he was arrested for the firearms, he will be arrested on charges of theft, sodomy, attempted murder, and kidnapping. Oh my god. Yeah. That's a laundry list of uh, charges. He, he escalated pretty quickly there. He is released and not charged. And this is due to the fact that the victim did not want to proceed with the case and refused to testify. So she was pretty scared of him and didn't want to have to point him out as her attacker. And you never know, they are living in a federal service post and his father is a lieutenant colonel in the army. So we don't know if maybe strings were pulled or something went down to kind of suppress that first case, but it's very little is said about it. Okay. So, and it could also be because of the fact that he's 16 years old. So he is still a minor. Right, he's still a minor. Yeah. In 1957, he was arrested for reckless driving and he was expelled from his high school for behavioral issues in Albany, New York, and that's Peter Schuler High School. Um, I don't know. I'm sure standards were very different in 1957, but it does take a lot to be expelled from a high school. And trying to get his son's life back on track, DeBarta Laban's father is going to use every last connection that he has to get his son enlisted in the United States Air Force. Now, this could have been where DeBarta Laban's whole life turned around. Because sometimes when we see tendencies like this of acting out with children and with adolescents and their aggressiveness, and sometimes it's they crave order. So maybe he really wasn't getting order at home because his mother was an alcoholic and his father was never there. And maybe the order of the military could help calm him down. Like, for instance, when Jeffrey Dahmer was in the military, we saw, like, the the strict order and the rules that were set out for him. He is going to love the fact that he has to follow them and that he doesn't commit any murders during this time. But when that's taken away from him, that's when the murders began again. So maybe that's something that could have happened for DeBarta Laban, but it's going to have the opposite effect on him. Sometimes I feel like those people, you know, they need structure. And it's like when there's structure in place and there's like, you know, there's a building block, they improve to an extent where you're not seeing all these issues coming out, you know? Yeah, these psychopathic tendencies. Yeah. It's kind of scary. There's an order set. There's a, their mind has a place to go. This has to happen because this has to happen. It's almost like an outlet, like a hobby almost. Right. And. Or it can go the complete opposite way, which it does for DeBarta Laban, because not only does he um, seem to be extremely aggressive, but he has a really strong dislike for any type of authority figure. And when someone has a problem with authority, the worst place they can go is the military. During his time in the Air Force, DeBarta Laban obviously did not have a good time. And within the first year of his enlistment, he will be court-martialed for improper insignia and improper uniform as well as disorderly behavior and for this he had to pay a fine of 155 dollars and spend two months in the stockade so basically what happened here was that he was wearing a higher ranking badge than he was supposed to be wearing a badge which was stolen which is interesting because what was found in that storage unit police badges a police badge 
after time being held in the stockade, which is kind of like a, like a military version of county jail. Okay. Because it was only a two months, so they wouldn't send him somewhere more than the stockade. He's going to continue with his bad behavior. DeBarda Laban is going to be forced to visit an Air Force psychiatrist for unauthorized absence from bed check. So he just wasn't showing up when he was supposed to be showing up, breaking restrictions twice, and being disrespectful to superiors. Eventually, this will lead to a dishonorable discharge from the Air Force in August of 1958. So one year and he's out of the Air Force. Well, that was quick. I'm sure his father was pissed. So after this, he's not going to be able to return home. I mean, obviously his parents are so disappointed in him. And he is going to move in with other family members in Fort Worth, Texas, where he will briefly attend another high school before getting expelled again. In 1959, he's going to marry his first wife, Linda Weir. And this is a short-lived romance because he's only going to be married to Linda for three weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks. Wow. Yeah. I mean, what? I'm sure he's not the nicest of men. And maybe she realized after the whirlwind romance they had that she wasn't. he wasn't Prince Charming. What a whirlwind yeah. romance. <laughs> um, well, like men like that, I'm sure he can put on the charm. For the moment. Yeah. And then when I think his true personality came out. Listen. These women are tending to run. I mean, he's going to get married if he, like, this isn't his only marriage here. Yeah. I mean, you also have to understand that, like, you know, <laughs> we are who we are. You can't hide that forever. And somebody like him, he he does a great job in masking that. No, he does. You know, but. You crazy. find out sooner or later. In October of that month, DeBarda Laban is sentenced to five years probation for a string of robberies and car thefts. It is also during this time that he is going to get a woman pregnant. Now, we don't know the name of this woman, but she's going to give birth to a stillborn baby girl in November. So it's really only a few months after the divorce is finalized. And it is an extremely sad event that happens. I think it was sad for the woman. Tabarda Laban seemed to have no reaction to this whatsoever. So... Sometimes these things that happen are trigger points for people. But for DeBarta Laban, it wasn't. Yeah. It, it did not affect him whatsoever. Well, he's out of his mind. Yeah. <laughs> the following month, he meets 17-year-old girl named Charlotte Weber. Now, this isn't too, too crazy because he's 19 years old. So it's only a two-year difference at this point. And he's going to get her pregnant as well. He eventually will marry Charlotte when she's about six months along. And in December, they give birth, well, she gives birth to Beth Ann, their daughter. Soon after the baby's birth, Charlotte is going to get pregnant again. DeBarda Laban will force her to carry the baby to term and give her up for adoption. And by September of 1961, Charlotte will ask DeBarda Laban for a divorce. And um, what some people in their analysis claim about this is that he was very upset that he kept having daughters. Right. His third daughter. And he has his a... hatred towards women. Right. And that makes sense. Right. And that's why he was not affected by the death of that baby and giving this third up for, for adoption. adoption. Yeah. At 21, Mike DeBarta Laban will give it a go with college. Yes, he's going to go to college without a high school diploma. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to enroll in Texas Christian University. 
So this is going to go really well for him. So well, in fact, that his probation for all of his auto thefts are going to get revoked and he ends up having to serve time in Texas State Prison for eight months because they realize that he is falsifying documents. So what he did was try to give them a fake high school diploma. So this was a violation of his probation. Wow. So now he has to go to Texas State Prison. Could you imagine? I don't feel like getting my high school diploma. I'm just going to make my own and then I get locked up for it. Well, yeah, and then I'm going to go to college while I'm on probation. They're not going to find out. He just has, like, this blatant disregard for all types of authority. Like, he just doesn't care and thinks he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. Clearly. The debarta Laban family is, during this time, going to suffer a great tragedy. The youngest of the three children, who was a paratrooper in the U.S. Army, who's going to take after his father, um, for some reason commits suicide in 1961. And his name is Ralph. And the reasons for his suicide are completely unknown. Again, DeBarta Laban seems to be unaffected by the event of his brother's suicide. He seems to be unaffected by it. That's what he's going to tell psychiatrists, psychologists that are going to interview him over and over again. But I just don't... I don't know. I think that that's just kind of like a shell that he's putting over himself. Um, he probably blames his mother for this. Right. I mean, I and we assume. always see, we see this all the time where, you know, everyone handles situations in their own way. Yeah. I mean, I know we're dealing with a psychopath, <laughs> but I mean, everyone handles their emotions, their, their emotions yeah. differently. Well, after Mike Tabartaleben is released from state prison, the family decides to take him in and try and help their now only son in 1963. This lasts for about a year until Mike's father is going to file a complaint against his son, which leads to him spending time in the Western State Hospital in Staunton, Virginia for a psychiatric evaluation. So after that time, he's going to kind of get out. He's going to want to live on his own. He stays in Virginia, but he doesn't live with his parents any longer. Um, He's going to kind of have like jobs here and there. Obviously, he's going to continue with his robberies, his thefts. And during this time, 1964, he meets his third wife, Wanda Faye Davis. Third and time's the charm. Third time, yeah, well, um, there's a few more times. Oh, man. This time, he includes his wife in his criminal acts. In 1966, he is charged with assault, sodomy, and the kidnapping of a young girl. But later, the charges are going to be dropped. We see here a two-year period between the marriage and the charges in 1966. And we could speculate that maybe the couple had committed more crimes between these two dates and we just don't know of them. It's crazy that with his wife, he's going to immediately in two years escalate to assault, sodomy, and kidnapping of a young girl. Like, this is something that the couple was probably involved in for, for a few years or, or practiced. Right, I think that makes sense. It was, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I And it's also weird that, like, the wife's just... I mean, I'm sure she wasn't fucking cool with it, but it's just weird how she goes well, maybe along she with was everything. Forced. Maybe she was forced to go along with it. I mean, I believe she was forced, but... I, I mean, mean, or not. You never know. Or not. Women could be sexual sadists as well. It hap- it, it's happened in the past. Yes. So, Fred I and mean, Mary West. Most it's just crazy, couple. yeah. But you could also say that sometimes with sexual sadists, we see a stopping in their activity when they find a partner who's kind of into what they're into. So maybe his needs were being met with his wife. We don't know. Like, there's a lot of speculating that we can do, but all we know is that whether he did it or he didn't do it, he wasn't caught. 
Right. The first time they're going to be ta- caught is two years after the marriage. And once again, it's always the trend here, and it always aggravates the shit out of me. This guy had charge charges on him after charges on him. Right. And every single time, nothing Drops. ever happens with that. It's so annoying. This happens all the time. Right. Well, I think that one of the things that can account for this is the fact that it's 1964. So communication between... Um, different states when it comes to law enforcement isn't something that's really going to start taking place until like the early 90s. So not only did it happen in two different states, but the first charge happened when he was a minor. Right. I mean, this kid's, this guy has I mean, obviously a lot of... he's got an extensive record, so they, but if the, if she's not going to testify, then there's no evidence. Right. I understand that. That's the problem. Unfortunately. I mean, if... and he's scared. They, she's probably scared. Yeah, I can understand that, too. In 1969, Wanda is an accomplice with her husband in an extortion kidnapping scheme. And later that year, she gets pregnant. So that's wonderful. (laughs) However, she's going to miscarry after one particularly brutal fight with Zabarda Laban, where he pushes her down a flight of stairs. And when Wanda gets pregnant again in 1969, she's going to divorce Zabarda Laban, which kind of leads us to believe that she was forced to do the things she was doing. And in January of that year, she's going to give birth to a daughter named Lindsay. I mean, it's it seems like she realized for the sake of her daughter that she needed to get out of that relationship because he was going to kill her, her daughter, if she stayed there. I mean, look, everyone has a breaking point. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm glad she left. Good. Good for her. Knowing what his issues are i'm sure she was tortured for those five years that she was with him yeah the divorce did not seem to bother him too much because shortly after that the 30 year old debarta laban is going to marry an 18 year old named karen now after the marriage there is an incident in which debarta laban is going to pistol whip another woman another woman during unknown circumstances but no charges are ever pressed also, during his fourth marriage, he is going to commit his first murder that we know of. Now, law enforcement definitely believed that he more than likely killed before this, but this is the first murder that he's only suspected of this murder. They only have circumstantial evidence against him with this. They have no physical evidence with him against this murder. So he's never been tried or convicted for this. But he's heavily suspected in this murder. In April of 1971, Terry McDonald, a real estate agent working at Child's Realty in Rhode Island, is going to show a series of houses to a man that she believes to be named Peter Morgan. McDonald's body is going to be found displayed in the basement of one of the houses she was scheduled to show that night. She was strangled and stabbed. Although DeBarta Laban is only suspected of this murder, Three witnesses picked out pictures of DeBarta Laban when asked to identify the man that McDonald was showing the houses to. Two of these women worked with her at the realty office, and the third was one of the women whose house McDonald showed to this Peter Morgan guy. DeBarta Laban is only going to be connected with these murders in, like, 1983. So this murder for 12 years goes completely unsolved. And then he's only connected in 1983. That's insane. This is the first known murder that we have. And it could either be he's 
he's definitely an organized killer. That's how he's categorized. So either he completely planned this out and practiced it over and over again, or he's done it before and he just hasn't been caught. I would say it's probably the fact that he was never caught. I mean, he has this amazing trend of just getting away with everything. Yeah, he seems to constantly get over things. And things are going to kind of get personally worse for DeBarta Laban in 1976. So that's kind of like five years after this murder. Karen is going to ask for a divorce. And this is going to be a big problem because for some reason, this bothers DeBarta Laban. Karen is going to become his sexual obsession. And they think that this is when he began acting out and abducting the women more frequently because of the rejection that Karen's going to give him. It's believed that Karen also was a sexual sadist, which isn't in the book that I read about Mike DeBartolaban. There's the doctors kept saying that sexual sadism is something that's common, but criminal sexual sadism is not common. So like they're two different things. So she might have been into the things that he was into. Right. But, but not criminally. Right. I mean, there's different levels yeah. that it can go. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, some people are into some. There's an ass for every seat. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So, but it seems like she may have wanted those things, but not with him. And isn't that the ultimate rejection? Right. And that's what he's going to hone in on here. And after this, he's arrested for counterfeiting for the first time. Why? Because he now needs to get a girl that he can keep in a cage because she's gone. Right. However, the first time, he's not going to do counterfeiting completely correct. He is going to get arrested. And he has to serve two years in the Danbury Federal Prison in Connecticut. In 1978, he is going to be released into a halfway house. So, arrested for counterfeiting for the first time in 76 and released in 78. Now, that's what the Secret Service agents were kind of trying to say, like, in the beginning of this case, where if you catch someone for counterfeiting, they're only going to spend a short amount of time in jail. If you catch them with the printing plates and the whole operation, that's a lot of time in jail because you can stack on years for that stuff. Right, this and of course, and, and they want to they want to stop the whole operation. They don't want to just catch one part. Correct. They want the whole thing to stop. Because look what happens when you just start stop the man. Look what he got out and did. Right. He's going to have a reign of terror from 78 to 84. Yep. After this, DeBarta Laban is going to move to Arlington, Virginia, where he buys his 1977 Thunderbird. Wait, is that a cool car? Is that cool? Eh, it's all right. Okay. I'm not a fan. Oh, well, John's not a fan, so... I'm not a fan, but hey, listen, everyone's it's entitled lame. to their opinion. Uh, <laughs> um, it's tan. It's tan? Yeah. Tan cars are never cool. Yeah, I guess not. They don't even make tan cars, like a color option, I feel like. So he's going to buy this 1977 Thunderbird, which he will be arrested in with in 1984. It is in this car that he's going to stop 19-year-old nursing student Lucy Alexander in September of 1978. He poses as a police officer to abduct the woman. He will hold Alexander for 18 hours, during which he brutally rapes her, sodomizes her, and forces her to perform fellatio on him. 
She claims that she was raped a total of four times and had to perform fellatio four to five times. And this is due to the fact that Debarta Laban had problems maintaining an erection. During the rape, Alexander was forced to call Debarta Laban daddy, something that was confer- that confirms his MO. Because during all of the tapes, he kept, t- the, the girls had to call him that at all times. Like the girls had to call him daddy and he's going to refer to them a lot as Becky. Like that's his name for all of these girls. Hmm. I guess that's his fantasy that he's playing out. And eventually Alexander is going to be released. He's going to drive her to an isolated area um, just east of Georgetown, Delaware, known as Hardscrabble. So, like, he releases her. And in February of 1979, DeBarta Laban is going to use the real estate ploy one more time. He's going to pose as a man named Al Wise. And he's going to be shown houses in Fayetteville, North Carolina, by real estate agent Elizabeth Mason, who was 31 years old. Once alone in a house, he attacks and assaults her with a handgun, ties her up, and gags her. He's then going to strangle her to the point of her completely passing out. He then is going to leave and steal her car. So I don't know if he knew, if he thought she was dead, but she wasn't. She's going to regain consciousness, but he stole her car. Three months later, he's going to abduct Lori Jensen in Ocean City, Maryland. Like, he's going crazy here and it's interesting because we have seen with serial killers that they go through this uh kind of like rampage mode at the end when they're like gonna get caught like a berserker mode like binge killing yeah and this seems to be happening and no one's catching him so it's kind of like this man's on constant berserker mode and no one's stopping him Think about all the crimes that have taken place that he hasn't been arrested for. Yeah. His first murder that we know of was 1971. Now we're talking about 1979. So the 20-year-old woman, Lori Jensen, is going to be walking home from work when a police officer approaches her and wants to ask her questions regarding a nearby robbery that took place. He says the suspect matches her description and she needs to get in the car. Jensen does so and is held captive for three days by DeBarta Laban, where he will commit the same crimes on Jensen that he did on Lucy Alexander. Only this time, he needs to use the sexual toys that he has to rape Jensen due to the fact that he can't become aroused. So this is also going to add to his rage. Right. Is the fact that he can't maintain an erection, He's has this hatred towards women, so now probably his inability to become aroused is her fault. Right, and, and the she rage. Takes, he takes it out on her. This also could kind of let us look into maybe his marriage with Karen and maybe why it ended. If they were into something like that and he was having intimacy issues and he wasn't able to perform, maybe that's why she's going to back out of the marriage, causing this kind of rampage to begin. Because before this... I mean, we don't, the whole thing is we don't know because we don't know how many women he was abducting. We don't know how many women he killed. We don't know any of that. Did any of his wives ever step forward and kind of claim anything, you know, or just anything that ever happened during the span of their relationship? I mean, they're just going to say that he was abusive. He also will tape this encounter with Lori Jensen. So Lori Jensen's whole three day abduction is going to be, um, is going to be recorded. And he also takes various pictures of Jensen. 
She is locked in a closet and, same as Alexander, is forced to call him daddy the entire time she is there. Debarta Laban will then drive Jensen back to her hometown and release her on June 3, 1979. Throughout the next two years, Debarta Laban will travel around the country counterfeiting at malls off of interstates, and this is when he becomes known to the Secret Service as the Mall Passer. Throughout this time, it's believed he was kidnapping, holding, and raping women just as he had Alexander and Jensen. We do have some accounts of this. For example, in October of 1979, he tries to attack a woman in New Jersey, but is unable to abduct her. In 1980, he poses as a police officer and tried to pull over Diane Overton, who was 25, but she successfully is going to get away. He also robs a clothing store in New Jersey, where he forces the only employee, who is a female, to dress up in skirt and heels, and he takes pictures of the attack, but he cannot rape the woman because of failure to become aroused. He then runs away. Next, he poses as a police officer to 19-year-old Lori Colbert, whom he forces to perform fellatio on him. He then let her go and drove off. And this is just kind of like a side note, when eventually she's going to see him in court in 1984, she is going to point right at him and say, that's him right there. That's the son of a bitch that did this. It was just the name of a chapter in the book that I read. I thought that was cool. Oh, nice. It's like, you son of a bitch. I'm also glad that someone finally... Got uh, their day in court. Got their day yeah. in court. Yeah, really. Well, well, we'll get there. Unfortunately, not all women that this happened to will get to do the same thing because only a fraction of those 46 pictured women are identified. We still don't know who they are to this day. Wow. And we don't know if they were released or if they were killed. That's incredible. Yeah. And it's actually really scary. It's 46 women. Only six were identified. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, his body count could be so much more than we know. Um, Law enforcement concluded that it was during these two years he assaulted and possibly murdered these women. So the 40 women that are unidentified, it is quite possible that they were murdered. It's also between 1979 and 1980 that he had a short-lived marriage with a woman named Barbara Abbott from Falls, Virginia. But the marriage is going to end pretty quickly. In April of 1984, he will use his real estate rouse one more time in Bossier City, Louisiana. He poses as a doctor this time, saying that he needs to move to the area immediately. He has three children and money isn't an issue. So that's basically like a real estate agent's dream. I need a big house. I have a lot of money. I need to move quick. Oh, yeah. A real estate agent, 40-year-old Jean McFall, thinks that this is too good to be true, so she's excited to show the house to this guy who calls himself Dr. Zach. So she's going to show him several houses in the area. And McFall is known for checking in at least three times a day when showing houses. This is actually really scary because my sister's a real estate agent, and she's really young, and she goes and shows these houses, and it always makes me nervous and I know it makes my parents nervous but think about how vulnerable a real estate agent is when they're showing a house to somebody oh definitely they're alone anything could happen someone could have lied about their identity to you you don't know who you're showing around it's definitely something that's really scary but what I have seen actually is uh... oh let me tell you I'll, I'll tell you because my sister scared the crap out of me the other day when she sent me I was just at home. Hold on. I'm going to read the text message word for word. She sent me something. It was a text message. 
and it sent to me her location and it said SOS I need emergency help sent from Samsung gear SOS track my location at and then sent the location I had a heart attack I almost died I'm like oh my god there's something wrong what should I do should I call the police what should I do um so I sent what (laughs) so that probably didn't help (laughs) anything and then she goes no no sorry it was an accident like I guess she was trying it out because now, like, as a real estate agent, like, she just can... It's pretty easy that she can just send her location and check in that way. And then, like, if there's an emergency, there's, like, she has the app up. And I guess she just presses a button if there's an issue. Right. Which is good. Yeah, no, But hey, scared me. Great. Scared me. Gave me a heart attack there. Whew. I will say this, though. I, I've seen a lot now where it's, like, a, a, two, a two-person a uh, two team now, too, when you go oh, to show Oh, showing houses. a house. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. That makes sense, especially because, like, the other, the one real estate agent was showing the house at night. I would never do that. That's scary. Because sometimes you got to be flexible. Like, if the people that you're showing house to are only available at night, that's scary, though. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't do it. So, when McFall is going to fail to check in, the police are going to be notified. And they search all of the houses that she had shown to Dr. Zach that day. And she's found in the attic of one of those houses. She's hanging from the rafter, and she has two stab wounds in her chest. And it's clear that the killer even wiped the blade of his knife on her blouse. Like it was a rag. That's like insult to injury right there. Yeah, that's disgusting. So, right around 1982, it's clear that DeBarta Laban knows law enforcement is closing in on him. He's charged in Kentucky with six counts of passing and possessing counterfeit currency... Two counts of firearm possession by a felon and holding a firearm during commission of a crime in June of 1982. It's pretty rough. In 1983, he's finally suspected of the murder of Terry McDonald. And it is also in that year that he is going to commit his last murder. He's going to break into a house in upstate New York where he is going to abduct two male roommates. Their names are David Starr and Joe Rapini. He's going to hold Rapini for ransom and then shoot him. So he kills Rapini, but David Starr is able to get away unharmed. He then is going to go on the run and continue his counterfeiting. That's crazy. It's insane. This guy just gets away with everything. Oh my gosh. Right. He's been going crazy for four years now. You know Constant what? abductions, murders. You know what I was thinking? Through this whole entire thing, mm-hmm. right? Do you, do you get that sense like where I feel like you feel like... He's almost like he's leaving breadcrumbs everywhere to almost, like, be caught. Yeah, it's like, don't do you want to be caught? Because that's what it really seems like. I really feel, I, I really, really feel like this guy did everything in his power to leave a breadcrumb trail. And it's it's crazy. Yeah, because you could kind of say, like, what is it? Is this a cry for help? I, I, I almost feel like he wanted to be caught so it would stop. Well, all of the notes in his, when they find his car, you know, when they have all those notes from him... One of the notes that has a receipt from Bossier, Louisiana, like Bossier City, I'm sorry, it's going to have receipts from the hotels that he stayed at there, gas that he got, and in his notes, he has Dr. Zach written. Hmm. So, like, it was him. He's Dr. Zach. There's no way around this. I mean, like, what else do you want here? It's like he, he clearly wanted to be caught. Yeah, I really feel that way. These were all just breadcrumbs along the way. Okay, so now let's pan back to the investigation the Secret Service was holding. 
Okay, so back 1984. Remember, they had reached out to law and other law enforcement agencies, and they were slowly getting information about crimes that DeBarta Laban had committed. Once the Secret Service contacts the FBI, they get an immediate visit from agents Kathy Kaiser and Joe McKelney. They had been working with Lori Jensen for four years now. Remember the woman who got abducted from Ocean City, Maryland? They believe that she is one of the women who was in the photographs. The FBI agents listen to the tapes and see the pictures, and they confirm that they believe this is Lori Jensen. Now, if Lori Jensen can confirm that this is her and DeBarta Laban is, we know, on the tape, then he's going to, it's a clear physical connection. And there, right, there's it's a tie strong physical evidence, yes. Like, she is the link that they need to prosecute this man. She's the only one that can do it. Um, however, this means that Lori needs to listen to her assault again. And she needs to relive everything that happened and basically be re-victimized. So this is something that the FBI didn't do lightly. It was something that was needed. And the agents are going to say that if it wasn't needed, they wouldn't have done it. But they needed Jensen to put him away. They also prepare her for the fact that she's going to have to listen to these tapes with him in the room when it comes to the court court trial. And that's hard. It's going to be really difficult. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Well, Lori Jensen is asked to come to Washington, D.C., and she tells the agents that that is her voice, and those are the pictures that were taken of her. She said, however, she couldn't remember too well what he looked like because all the times that she was in the car with him, she wasn't allowed to look at him directly, and she was too scared to. And every time that he would um, assault her and rape her, he would come in the room with a sack over his head that only had holes cut out for the eyes and mouth. Right. So he so was she, trying very hard to hide to his hide identity, himself. obviously. Right, because it was clear. I mean, it seems like, you know, he he was going to let her go, just like he let Lucy Alexander go, but he didn't want her to see his face. When analyzing the kind of man that we're dealing with, it becomes clear that he had eluded or gotten away with so much in his lifetime that you know, he finally needs to be taken down because this is too much at this point. And law enforcement want to go full speed ahead and they're going to try and charge him with everything they can. So at the end of their investigation, DeBarta Laban would have to face several judges and juries for the crimes he committed across the United States. In the end, it was determined that he should only be tried for the cases that there were physical evidence with. So he had six charges of counterfeiting, a charge of aggravated rape, assault, and kidnapping, as well as three pending murder charges. So those would be the charges for Terry McDonald, Gene McFall, and Joe Rapini. In 1985, the trials are going to begin. First, DeBarta Laban must face his crimes for the abduction and assault of Lori Jensen. Now, although this seems like kind of a slam dunk case here, there's one vulnerability. DeBarta Laban, who is acting as his own attorney, is claiming that the evidence was illegally obtained. Therefore, his file, therefore he files a motion to suppress all evidence found in the storage unit, which is everything the prosecution has. He is claiming that because there was no warrant, the evidence is inadmissible. No physical evidence would mean no conviction. And the judge is actually going to take him really seriously. And this is going to really piss off the prosecution. 
And the judge is even going to go as far to compliment him on his knowledge of the law. Are you serious? I'm, <laughs> I kid you not. I mean, I'm, I'll grant it. It's a very strategically played move. Correct. By someone who doesn't know law. But what a dumbass. Well, I think that what's happening is he has zero respect for authority. He thinks he's just so important. And he thinks he knows more than everybody else. And he thinks he can get away with everything. So I think him playing the role of the attorney is just something that he would do. Well, it just it bolsters his ego by oh, making a comment about his knowledge of the law. I, so, but I the judge is going to do this, I think for a reason because he wants to appease him because then the judge is going to turn around and say that the motion to suppress evidence is denied. So the evidence is going to be used from the storage locker. It was ruled that when the Secret Service arrested DeBartolaben, that they had a warrant to search all properties and the storage unit was included in that warrant. And the evidence was not illegally obtained. So the judge is going to rule against his motion to suppress. DeBartolaben is still acting as his own lawyer, however. This is a problem because who has to take the stand? Lauren. Oh, the Lord. Yeah, wow. So this is probably another, like he does this and he becomes the sadist again. He's taking pleasure in the fact that Lori Jensen now has to sit on stand, listen to this tape with him in the room and speak to him again. Do you think that was done on purpose? Oh, 100%. I, I also think it was. Yeah. Because for him, it's always a matter of control. Yeah. And he has to be in control. He He's will disgusting. control every event f- moving forward. And this is like his last, like, you know, like his last go at everything. Correct. You know? And I think this is something that also happened um, in the, like, the chicken coop murder cases where the man who was convicted of the crimes, he is going to kind of, like, hold his nephew and, like, sexually assault him. And his nephew is finally going to get out and tell all the crimes, like, confess all the crimes that his uncle committed while he was living at the ranch with him. And the uncle is his act is a lawyer, is acting as a lawyer for himself. So he's questioning the boy again, re-victimizing him. This is something that's occurred before. And the fact that judges allow this to happen, I think, is disgusting. To allow someone to be re-victimized right in front of you. It's, that's crazy. It's crazy, it yeah. It really is. But you do have the right. You do have the right. And so, everyone has to be given their right. I know. So that's kind of like a, ugh, that's a rough call. It's a slippery slope. Yeah. Well, during the trial, and when people talk about the trial, they said you could have heard a pin drop in the courtroom. When she was on that stand, and he was questioning her, and that tape was played. Like, everyone was equally uncomfortable. Not as much as Lori Jensen, but everyone felt it. And he is going to stand in front of her and say, let's talk about those tapes. Lori, how are you able to identify the man that did this to you if you never saw his face? And she's going to reply to him, I heard his voice. And he said, well, that could have been anyone's voice. And she looked right at him and said, no, it's you. You are the one. So that's going to be really convincing for the jury. Especially because he's being a dick. 
Well, once again, you know, and his many elaborate schemes and roles that he likes he to play. He thinks he's going to get away with it. He thinks he's going to get away with it, and he likes the fact that he's pretending to be a lawyer. Ugh, he's so gross. He loves it. So he is sentenced to 180 years for the abduction and rape of Lori Jensen. At first, the conviction was 15 years lighter, but after a tirade against the court made by DeBarta Laban, 15 years is added on to it. Um... Because he wasn't happy with it. Because he didn't win. Because he didn't get away with it this time. And then we see his true personality come out in a courtroom tirade. He was convicted of kidnapping two other women and suspected of abducting dozens more. Including the six counterfeiting charges he was eventually convicted of. In total, he was sentenced to 375 years. Well, unless he's a uh, a sea tortoise, he's going to yeah. die in prison. <laughs> I think they would even die. Um... But that doesn't include... The murders were never tried. None of the murders were brought to trial. And of the 46 women featured in the pictures found in storage, only six of them have been identified. DeBarda Laban himself is going to give up most of his evidence. Like we said before, he was a meticulous note-taker, so most of the receipts from restaurants, hotels, gas stations kind of show where he was. Um, Like we said, the connection with writing Dr. Zach on a piece of paper... But the problem was there was no physical evidence connecting him to any of those three murders. Yeah. I Listen, I feel like... So I, think, I guess they said, let's get him for what we can get him for. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah. I mean, look, they they knew this dude's going to jail. We, you know, we have what we have on him. And they figured it was enough. Right. I mean, unfortunately for the families of those victims, they don't get the real justice. Like, 100%, you know... He's the guy that did it, and, you know, whatever. He, But right. at the end of the day, he's serving his time. It's true. The families don't feel like they got justice. They don't. Of Rapini, McFall, McDonald. They feel like he should have gotten everything. He should have been convicted because they don't want him to feel the satisfaction of getting away with it. Which I understand. I understand that. But then you have to look at it this way. I no also what, would want to murder him if he did that to my mother or sister. Right. But you have to look at it this way. No matter what, he's in jail for like 300 plus years. Yeah. So he's never going to be able to do this ever again. No, it's true. It's so. very true. While incarcerated, the FBI took an interest in DeBarta Laban because of his crimes and extensive record. Ray Hazelwood in particular wanted to study him. Now, Hazelwood is most known for developing the distinction between organized and disorganized murders. So he's going to classify DeBarta Laban as an organized murderer, something that he plans out. He was meticulous in planning things out. He is also going to be the first to categorize rapists. He says that rape isn't something that can be used as a blanket term. There's six types of rapists. And he defines them as power reassurance, power assertive, anger retaliatory, anger excitation, opportunistic, and gang. That's too much, too much rape for me. Sorry. Oh my God. Sorry. My stomach hurts now. Of the six, anger excitation is by far the most dangerous and the hardest to capture. And that is how DeBarta Laban was, was categorized. He was angry. He had deep-rooted anger against women, and that's what's going to get him excited. Makes sense. Yeah. And the reason why he's saying that those are the hardest to capture is because 
those rapists have a self-awareness. They know that the only thing that can sexually excite them is rape, is the anger. So it is something that they are going to have to specifically set out to do. Which requires planning. Right. Another person who was categorized under this was Ted Bundy. Fun fact. Who Hazelwood also is going to work with. That's cool. Yeah. When comparing the two, he said that the, he felt like the difference, the main difference between Ted Bundy and DeBarta Laban was the fact that Bundy got off on being a sadist, but not in a sexual way. Like, he got a power trip off of being sadistic to somebody, whereas DeBarta Laban sexually gets off on being horrible to somebody. Right. That was the difference between the two, he said. Hazelwood also offered the theory that there was no cure for pedophilia. He's going to be the first to come out and say this because prior um, to this, people are going to think that there are cures. And some people still do. This is, you know... Something that's definitely something up for that's debate. debated. Yes, um, he also was going to make the argument that there's no cure for a sexual sadist. So the issues that Debarta Laban has, there is no cure for. He has conducted numerous studies involving sex crimes, including cases of autoerotic asphyxiation, and he did numerous studies involving the willing victims of sexual sadists. This is something that interests him. So he's talking about like the wives and girlfriends of these men. And he's going to do studies involving um, the idea that sexual sadists really appear in everyday life. And he's going to see that these wives and these girlfriends that are going to be willing participants will kind of calm the urge for the sexual sadist that is a criminal to attack other women. Hazelwood, after he retired from the FBI, was still an active member of the Academy Group, which is an organization of former FBI agents and law enforcement officers. So he's still working with government agencies to help track down uh, sexually oriented murderers because that's his area of specialty. He's also going to co-author two books with Stephen Mitchard, who wrote the book that we read for this case. And he also, he's going to give lots of lectures across North America about sexual sadism and his presentations are going to focus heavily on the BTK. But he does talk about DeBarta Laban a lot. And he's going to study DeBarta Laban. And after doing so, he is going to um, give the following. The following profile has been made about DeBarta Laban. Okay? I'm going to read it. DeBarta Laban has been described as fitting the pathology of a so-called anger excision rapist the kind of rapist who derives pleasure from the suffering of his victims. Their goal is to dominate and control their victims. This could be seen through his MO of making the victims call him daddy and forcing them to be what he refers to as his SMBs. He was also profiled as having a domineering mother. His adjustment problems with school and the military completely fit in with his criminal profile. His crimes repeat themselves, as we see with his improper insignia in the military and posing as a cop, which could lead to his ideas of grandeur, believing that he is stronger, smarter, and more powerful than he really is. Also, the fact that he was the lawyer in his case. He has a problem with authority and not being able to control himself. He had an extreme difficulty with females and believes that his victims desire what he's done to them. His anger with women may also stem from the fact that he blames them for his inability to become aroused. 
His fantasies were influenced by sadomasochistic pornography, and if he was married, he would have degraded his wife and experimented sexually with her, which is basically kind of what we were saying. Yeah. And it could account for, like, those um, periods of no, no attacks or periods of attacks that we just don't know about. Um, it also explains why he had so many wives and why they all basically, right. they all left. This could explain why his marriages were short and they're usually involving a lot of violence. He was cagey and intelligent, knowledgeable about law enforcement. His father was in the army and he may have stalked his victims to relive their experience. Oh my God. So the women he let go. That's he may so have stalked disgusting. Them. And if you think about it, that that makes sense because these women were all over the country. So as he's going all over the country counterfeiting, he's probably revisiting these freaking women. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, because he's all over. He's he's traveling all over. It's you know, it's 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 gross. Right. So Hazelwood will say that sexual sadism is common, but criminal sexual sadists are rare, which we said before. The criminal gets aroused only by inflicting pain. The psychic wellsprings of sexual sadism are unknown. So, like, where this comes from in the psyche, it's relatively unknown, although it certainly must be significant in that the overwhelming majority of subjects who are males have a deep hatred for women. Hazelwood is going to say, I don't just mean angry. They hate women. To the heterosexual sadist, all women are bitches, whores, and sluts. This means all women. He believes that if he pushes the right buttons, that personality of a woman will come out. So, like, if he keeps doing what he's doing, that that personality will come out in every woman, no matter who you are. And to prove this, he takes a nice woman and tears her down. When she reacts to him, he becomes the woman she thinks all women are. In the case of DeBarta Laban, he states that the hatred of women may have begun with his mother. This is interesting because... The first victim that he has, Terry McDonald, the first victim we know about, is strikingly similar in physical appearance to his mother. Oh, my God. So he was going out and looking for someone Mm -hmm. that looked like his mother. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Hazelwood also is going to state that realtors, because they were so vulnerable, first off, were a good victim to him. He also is going to state that the poise and self-confidence that a real estate agent has would incite that rage in him. Like the confidence of like a woman. Right. In the workforce doing, you know. And when Hazelwood is asked, because this is a really fascinating thing we haven't talked about yet. Some of his victims are going to be murdered and some are going to be let go. So why? And Hazelwood says that these guys seem to have a type of subconscious criteria for the people they decide to kill. So like it's something that they may not even be aware of, but they have already chosen in their head who they're killing and who they're letting go. But what I think is the women that he, uh, Hazel was going to make it very clear that his sexual obsession and everything that he acts out with the women that he abducts, abducts, rapes, and lets go is in relation to his wife, Karen, who he still wants to be with. Like, that was his sexual obsession. He was so rejected by her and what he does to them. It's it's like he's taking it out on Karen, kind of. Yeah. But he doesn't kill them because he still loves her. I see what you're saying. The women that he murders are these older women like his mother. 
I see the connection. I mean... So it's like he's murdering his mother, but taking out his sexual fantasies on his wife, ex-wife. He wants to keep reliving this, so he's taping it, and then he's going back and stalking the victims again. So he's like, he's letting him go on purpose so he can keep reliving this and reliving this. Once you kill someone... It's over. It's hard to relive yeah. it. But this, he could see the fear in the women again. You know what I mean? Because he knows that like, as he's stalking these women that he abducted and tortured tortured so much that they were screaming so loudly and begging to be murdered so they could end the pain he knows if he reveals his face for one second that fear comes right back and i think he got off on that yeah oh yeah and i i think it is so crazy that we don't hear a lot more about this guy because we don't know what his body count is. I think it's way more than three. And I think his um, serial rapist count is way more than 46. It was only the women that were pictured. Right. And you have to remember one of once uh, uh, of something that's re- like really big that I think we're overlooking. He had to establish like the way he goes about everything. When he the was 16. He, he started when he was 16. That's what I'm saying. So he only started taping and all when, this in stuff. 79, in 79. In 79. So he started taping these when he was 39 years old. Right. So who's to say that he didn't build up to right. taping? Right. So he, this could have been going on forever. And he just didn't think to tape it. Right. So I mean, this can go. This can go this all the way back. This is horrifying. That people horrifying. like this exist in yeah. the world. Well, I think that we're gonna end this with a happy note. Mike DeBartolayman is going to die of pneumonia in the Federal Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina, in early in January of 2011. And the sad part is that many of his victims. And the families of his victims feel like they never really, truly got the justice they deserved. In this case, yeah, I think it might have been a systemic problem with the fact that he wasn't kept by law enforcement. But I think that, like I said, it's a systemic issue with our judiciary system and him getting away and being a minor in different states. But I think that once they caught him, law enforcement did everything they could to to really get them. I think they did a good job in this case. I think it's just a... I just want to tip my cap off to the Secret Service because if you really think yeah. about it, if it really wasn't for them and to trying to bust this guy with this counterfeiting shit, he would have never been exposed. Right, and they, they really stuck with it and they wanted to see it through. Yeah. And see these victims get justice. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us for our episode 14 Um, Again, just to remind you, you can follow us on all social media platforms, um, True Crime Couple. And if you would like to email us with like a show idea or something you'd like to hear, you could email us at truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And we are we're always interested. Any ideas that you have, um, I know it's I know it's approaching Halloween. If maybe if you have something else, creepy something something creepy. creepy, maybe we can do like a part two on our Patreon or something. Also, um, also, if you want to leave us an iTunes review, that would be so helpful if you haven't done so already. If you did, thank you so much. And again, if you're interested in donating to the Patreon page, you can do that. Uh, Patreon.com slash True Crime Couple. And we will see you for episode 15 in two weeks. We're going to start switching to an every other week schedule because 
work is crazy, so is grad school, and right now we're kind of all over the place trying to save money to make this podcast better. So we'll see you in two weeks. See you guys. Bye.